It was a week ago that we started this retreat. A long time, short time. And though here we are in the present moment, And all those days seem to have dissolved. All those moments have led us to this moment. It's all the same present moment, but the the forms and conditions which keep dissolving back into the space somehow are linked with one another in a mysterious way. Are we the same person we was we were a week ago? Oh yeah, I'm Kitty Sorrow, but well, I'm not really the same. But are we different persons? Absolutely different. The Buddha says that if you have milk and then becomes butter, then it becomes curds or cheese. It's the same. It's different. You give it different names. But we can see that one is linked, one is transformed, one gives rise to. You could say we're the same person, you could say we're different. Those are just sayings. But somehow there's a sense, uh, for me at least, that there's been a lot done in this week. A lot that is really noble and praiseworthy. So though I find myself quite tired, Uh, I feel really good about and to Nifus as well about the efforts that we've all made together. They keep dissolving and re-manifesting dissolving and re-manifesting. Some people have wondered what what practices do you recommend for daily life? Everything. <laughs> the only things that we have brought to this retreat is what Tanissa uh, and myself and Max have found helpful in our lives. We've offered what what really over the past many years has felt very helpful, continues to be helpful.
Now sometimes we can designate the different activities, well that's qigong and that's calm practice, what's being with the breath and that's metta expanding and that's just wide open choicelessness, that's letting go and prayerfulness or praise or chanting or bowing which what which should I do thirty three percent this fifteen percent that seventy four percent that those numbers don't add up <laughs> to get a feeling, start to get a feeling that all of these practices keep dissolving and pointing back to the, this present experience, to the spaciousness of it, to the forms within it, to vitalizing this, this body-mind, to brightening, brightening it, to calming it, to relaxing it, to invigorating it, to illuminating it. being patient and, and holding and restraining so that we can stay with it. Pervading it and sharing the quality of our presence. It all, at first they might really seem so different, but I hope uh, we've begun to get a sense that they're all held within this vessel of presence. They're all manifesting and transforming within this present moment, within this abiding. And it's for each of us to trust, to trust, trust this inner wisdom that can sense. What is the result of this? Does this seem skillful, helpful? And many of us have, have responded in that way. It's been such a privilege to be able to listen in and, and uh, receive and share the Dhamma reflections in our, our small group discussions and in our uh, individual conversations. This really gives me faith in, in humanity. When we give human beings a chance, when we give human beings a chance to actually make contact with our lives, when we give each other permission to, to do that wholeheartedly, and then to share about that, to speak from that, and then to receive each other's sounds and reflections and doubts and hopes and challenges and insights about, well, this helped, or that helped. I found so much uh, wisdom. I don't know how you found listening to each other. Sometimes we listen to ourselves and say, oh, God, did I really say that? Oh, no, I can't believe it. I heard so much beauty, so much amazing authenticity. 
speaking from this place of our being here and receiving each other. Even just that much can make a huge difference in daily life. Giving rise to opportunities where we have permission and encourage ourselves and others to have permission to to be with how we are and to, to talk from that place about how it is. To actually have the time to receive each other. One at a time. To hear each other's voice. But all these different practices have their place and it's for us to, to sense what is what seems to be particularly helpful and to get this feeling of the balancing sense of being able to ask the question, how is it now? And for a moment to uh, be able to hold more lightly our fixed views that, that propel us into being so busy going somewhere, being so busy believing something, being so busy fending off, that we're not really in touch with how it is. We're, we're hypnotized by how we think it should be or hypnotized by some opinion. can ask a question, as we've been doing from time to time, oh, well, how is it? And then to trust, trust it. When we sense it, it's too scattered. Sense it's too exhausted. Sense too tense. And we can get a feeling for the balancing, the, the letting go, the relaxing. A sense for the stabilizing, when we realize we're just all over the place, to... to to bring forth a few minutes even of I'll deal with that in a minute, I'll deal with that later, I'll deal with that, I promise, but for now, just rooting ourselves. Where's the body? Is it breathing? Can I move the body? Qigong can be incredibly helpful for finding ourselves, stabilizing the mind, invigorating as we've been finding the the heart and the body with the breath, unifying the spaciousness, the heavens and the earth within this one place, this one body, awareness. Get a feeling for for this uh, balancing. Be willing to just experiment so we get it wrong. What's that? When something hurts, that's that's good opportunity to know. That's asking for attention. Oh, the ennobling truth that reminds us: if we didn't have any sensation of pain, which sometimes we would like to not have, that's actually a very dangerous situation. Don't have any pain. Cut yourself, you don't even know it. Bruise yourself, you don't even feel it. It's understandable how we want to blot it out sometimes, but the, the, the pain is, is our sensitivity, calling for presence. When we cut ourselves and it's painful, then that brings awareness. And then out of the awareness, oh, that needs cleaning. Oh, that's bleeding. Oh, that needs holding. Oh, that needs stitching. How do we know? Because we, we, we're there. And then the wisdom arises. 
from contact with the pain has beckoned us. Let's not hate our pain, calling for attention, whether it's within or without. It's it's, it's the dukkha that is calling for a listening, for the one who listens that can then respond. We've been encouraging an agility, offering a whole range of skillful means that, that all have their place. All are domadors, all are a, can be a part. Each of us will find our own particular ones that we're most comfortable with or maybe are most helpful for us. But it's useful to have agility. It's useful to be, have different skillful means. I hope uh, we've gotten a feeling for that. The instructions for one sound different from the other. But if we're really dutiful and rigid religious practitioners, you know, we'll write down, Kitty Sarah says, do this and do that. Focus the mind. Leave that, leave that. Focus the mind. Steady the mind. Okay, like that. And we say, you know, like Tanishal says, let go, be spacious. <laughs> Contradiction here, we have to work this out. <laughs> I, I like the way Ajahn Chah described it. He said if you're, if you're on the road and you have, you're seeing your friends walking down the road, maybe it's dark, maybe it's a little slippery, if you see them veering too close to the left, you might say, go right. Maybe they're even getting caught in the ditch. You'll say, go right. If you see some veering to the right and getting caught on the right or slipping, stuck, say, go left. We can argue about it, which it is. Is it hold on and steady the heart? Is it let go? Give, sit to restrain, sit to calm, sit to invigorate. We can find all kinds of contradictory, seemingly contradictory. But if we get the feeling that, that the Buddha was pointing to, to balance, to go left, to go right, and back to a sense of balance. We, you know, who do we find out? Tell me, am I out of bounds? Okay, someone else can say, well, I'm not sure how it feels, but it doesn't look a little bit out of bounds. <laughs> but in the end, well, we can help. We can get some feedback from others, but in the end, can we actually trust what feels right? A lot of these practices uh, come down to, to basic, simple mudras. One, one great, wonderful great saint that's been a source of inspiration for Tanisha and myself and many others over the last 25 years. Great Indian uh, 
Sanyaputta named Sri Nisargadatta. And he said, Wisdom says I'm nothing. Or sometimes I would prefer to say, Wisdom says I'm no thing. Compassion says I'm everything. between these two banks the life of the awakened one flows wisdom says I'm nothing or I'm nothing compassion says I'm everything between these two banks the life of the awakened one flows this mysterious condition of of being human. What happens in our wisdom practice, making contact with form, feeling, perception, as we've been doing, steadying the heart, in investigating. And what happened to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, manifested and dissolved like those lightning flashes in the Drakensberg. Like the dewdrops that are like jewels. Or maybe some of them weren't so glittery as jewels, but they were there, some of the experiences. And then they're there, and then the sun and the heat changes and they seem to be gone. Now wisdom practice, and at first maybe from a distance, ah, well, that experience is now gone. Yeah, I was so excited and now I'm calmer. I was so worried and now where is that? First there's a time lag. And then with our moments of sustained presence, we can start to contact the the ever-changing forms and feelings and perceptions as the in-breath mysteriously, moment to moment, dissolves and is recreated. Birth and death and birth and death and birth and death. In moments of really seeing this flow, not that we have to force ourselves to let go, it becomes obvious. What is there to cling to? There isn't something solid to get hold of. That notion of a thing, it's a false notion that becomes clear. There's no thing. You call it a thing. Call the breath a breath. Call the Dhamma talk a Dhamma talk. This Dhamma talk is full of holes. Swiss cheese. Sounding and dissolving. So then we, we start to question, well, what, what is a thing? No things. That recognition is nothing to be grasped. And that this sense that I'm going to get something becomes obviously frustrating, obviously a source of continual disappointment and frustration. So wisdom lets go of that unnecessary imagining, not through aversion, 
just through recognition, still in touch with the ever-present forms that keep dissolving, but knows that this contraction and imagining that I'm just this, it's obvious in that letting go, then when, when there's a letting go, there's a sense of the emptiness, the spaciousness, the stillness that is tasted, even though forms keep dissolving and appearing and dissolving and appearing. Wisdom says, I'm no thing. In the moment of letting go of this endless becoming, endless rejection, we can taste the peace, the peace that the Buddha tastes. And you taste the sea here, and you taste the sea there, you taste the sea in the Atlantic or in the Pacific. The Buddha taught it's one taste, it's a salty taste. When we let go, there's one taste, peaceful taste. Just for us to reflect on when the Buddha taught that all things merge in this peaceful taste this place where there's no more separation. Peaceful taste. Realizing our notion of this and that and tomorrow and yesterday when we start to see those thoughts as bubbles. And there's just suchness. Forms that are dissolving back into the stillness. Compassion, though, is on everything. Moments of letting go bring us to the, to the noticing the stillness beneath the waves. It's still the forms, but it's so obviously merging in stillness. Compassion, what's that? When we make contact, when our heart is open and then making contact, what happens when we make contact with the body? We feel it. When we make contact, there's been the revelation about that form. If we're making contact just with views and opinions, then we just seem to think the reality is our view and opinion, but we're not necessarily in touch. But if our thoughts are just directing the attention to here, or to the person that we're talking to, or to the feeling that we're experiencing, then, as we've been uh, reflecting, then when, when, we, when the heart opens to a form, that's a rising in the heart. There's no separation. We're one with that. If it's painful, we can resonate with that. Then it can be compassionate. If there's a natural move to, to hold it, to listen to it, to allow it to be healed. If there's beauty, that's why when... Why do we respond in nature? That form, and we become one with, resonate with the beauty of the color, the beauty of the flow, the beauty of the laughter. We have this mudra in the heart that can hold, hold the body, or we can hold the room. And the attention holds the room, all of all the forms in this room. Compassion doesn't. Compassion is rooted in wisdom. Doesn't try to chop it up. Just resonates with the room, with each other. When Tanisha last night read the wonderful 
quote from Master Hua, reminding us of where we're heading. We're not heading anywhere, we're heading here, but how the blossoming of more and more fully being here. The Buddha taught that uh, we're destined for Buddhahood, destined for full awakening. And that more and more as we learn to relax and reflect and investigate and let go and start to sense all the sense of separation of self and others that comes through the misunderstanding of thought. Then there's the appreciation of emptiness and also the appreciation of our deep interconnectedness with each other. That wonderful phrase, uh, all living beings are my family. We're brothers and sisters in this journey of birth and death, seeking the peaceful, seeking the compassionate, seeking the wise. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. Empty space is my university. My name is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and giving are my function. We're growing into this. It's not a question of, you know, should I practice compassion, should I practice wisdom? Whenever we hold a form, we have the opportunity to listen to the sounds of the world, to resonate with that painfulness, to trust that the very listening is already a response as the pain is being revealed, as there can be a natural resonance. In the moment of not grasping, of letting go, then we can notice the perfection, the silence, the spaciousness, spaciousness within that form. That the space and the form are perfectly melded. The wisdom and the compassion are blended with one another. Each word talks about a slightly different emphasis. That's in touch with this true nature. There are a couple of principles though that we haven't touched so clearly on that we've been pointing to them quite a lot but that I would like to at least, at least touch on. Notice we've been emphasizing a lot from the very early breath meditations in how the Buddha taught pervading. Not just noticing in and out but noticing that it was in and out for a reason because out seems out of the body, in seems in the body. Already the Buddha encouraging us to notice we're part of a context. What was outside is inside, what's inside, outside. Training ourselves to stabilize the mind. And remember when we were talking about learning to suffuse and encourage the whole body to train ourselves to be, for the whole body to be sensitive as we breathe in and out. Notice how in the Qigong, Max has been emphasizing the same thing in a very beautiful and fluid and skillful way. 
periodically having a stop and to breathe with the whole body, to feel the whole body. These aren't just our quirks. They might be our quirks, but notice that they're also rooted in, in, in wise teachings of encouraging spaciousness. How generosity encourages when we're locked into a, a confused, distorted notion of self. Generosity helps us realize we're in a context, in a flow. When we reflect, as Tanisha did last night beautifully, that that sun, 93 million miles away, just being itself, powers us. Powers the food with the wind and the rain. It, it nourishes the body. Continual context around us. Illusions rooted in this false sense of separation, false sense of meanness. One thing that's very helpful is in this expanding, the letting go. We're desperately locked onto something. The seeing things change gets perspective, space. The letting go gets space. The metta practice that we did today helps reveal how much limitation, contraction, aversion brings as it thins that off and thins that off. So there's places for drawing lines when it becomes unconscious. We really think we're in here, I mean, we're locked in, and the world is out there, and it gets very toxic. It's not easy to breathe in there. And that's the place where then birth and death happens, because then we're so linked to conditions, to thoughts, to feelings, to circumstances, and then they change, and our whole world's turned upside down. What happens? This is a very important principle, this giving space. As the Buddha taught, he called it the salt crystal principle. Sometimes when we're getting overwhelmed, what are we being overwhelmed by? Well, I would, the Buddha called them floods. Gitasava, avijasava, bhavasava, kamasava, he called them floods. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by wanting, desiring. The stream, becoming, which we've talked about, having to become something, get somewhere. Overwhelmed by views. It is, it isn't, should be, can't be. Hopeless views, angry views, all the kinds of views, swept away. Avijasava, the flood of just confusion. And, and when we just feel buffeted, taken away, beyond our control, suffering, the Buddha called this vipaka karma, karma, the resultant karma, momentum that we've set in motion through years and decades and lifetimes of habitual ways of acting and speaking and seeing and hearing. Buddha taught that, that the way in which we make a karma, that the essence of karma is intention. When we intend something that is felt in a painful way, if it's rooted in some sort of aversion or greed or delusion, then there's going to be some kind of painful response. 
at some time. He talked about when we, through an intention, create a karma that's non-greedy or non-hateful or non-deluded, what's called a wholesome karma that's made to be felt in some sort of pleasing or healing way, that there will be some sort of pleasing result later. But he taught that this law is very fluid, very flexible. It's not nearly so simplistic at all as eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's how, that, that's views and opinions to do that. You did that to me, well then, bah. Sometimes it seems like that, or in physics, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. But in the karma that's set in motion by thought and by speech and by action, the Buddha taught that the results are flexible and fluid. Yes, if we karmically set in motion something that's felt to be hurtful, there'll be some kind of hurtful response, but it's not fixed. The same with a pleasant response. He gave this example. He says two people do the same slightly unwholesome thing. Why is it that one of them has a result that is painful big time? Takes them to a place of just unremitting pain what he called hell. And someone else does the same thing, slightly unskillful. And they immediately feel something that's painful, but it doesn't last long, it's dissolved. He said, what, what's going on here? For example, and I'm thinking of an example, and then living in South Africa, uh, an example came to mind. I thought, well, sometimes we drive, Tanisha and I, and as keen as we try to be mindful and responsible on the road. These African roads are amazing. They're, they're vast. and I mean, there's huge traffic in this country. So on African roads, there's a lot more space. But you have unexpected things happening. You have animals. You have cows. You have people carrying wood on the road. You have all, And you have all kinds of vehicles that haven't been checked for decades. <laughs> and you have uh, loads of people who don't have licenses. And you also have people who are quite intoxicated. And you have... Uh, and you have people who own the road, some of these taxi drivers, and when you see one of these guys coming, you say, get out of the way. <laughs> but anyway, occasionally one's equanimity wavers, <laughs> and you're driving along, and someone does something outrageous, and they go along, and then, and then you know, the urge comes up. What are you doing? I mean, can you believe that? You, when the truck coming like that, and zooming in like that? <laughs> Now, what if, what if we do that? Two of us do that and, and, and make a, a gesture or a face to, to somebody else driving, going in front. Now, on the scheme of maybe unwholesome action, I mean, there are some more serious things in the world, <laughs> in terms of the spectrum. But, you know, well, why is it that, you know, you do that and, and the one person maybe, you know, there's a... You know, the person goes, what? I mean, in Africa, anything can happen. I tell you, what? And then they kind of pull out the car, drive you off the road, take out a gun and shoot you. That's possible. It happens. I mean, you, you won't believe this story that people come and share about what happens. And that's just one thing that can happen. And somebody finds themselves in a terrible situation, injured or killed or or something. 
And also another thing that can happen is, is uh, I mean, I've felt this uh, rage I mean, probably made a few gestures. And then sometimes you, you, you get a kind of look, stern look back and then suddenly you immediately feel like, hey, wait a minute, wait, where are we going? <laughs> wait, 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 not very skillful. And you just, thank you, thank you, that, that's fine, just keep going along. <laughs> Proving anything, breathing in, breathing in. <laughs> okay, and it welled up and it was a warning. Hey, that's not so good to yell at people on the road. Good <laughs> teacher, good teacher. And then, then one carries on. We both did the same thing, maybe. Why does one end up in the other? This is just an example, but the Buddha gave this example. And he said, he said, uh, in the case where someone does something like that, that ends keeps ending up in something really difficult. He said, it can be the case that they haven't developed the body. They haven't developed the virtue. They haven't developed the mind. They haven't developed spacious states, unlimited states. They dwell with a limited, cramped mind. They dwell with suffering. He said, the person then who the response is more immediate, right away, you get the painful response, you think, hey, that wasn't skillful, what am I doing? I can just go slower and wish that the other person doesn't get himself or someone else harmed. Immediately, you know, I'm warned, hey, this is, this is dangerous, I don't look at this angry reaction. The Buddha said, the person that has an immediate response, and then, and, and, but it doesn't last for very long, he said, that's someone who's developed body. Developed awareness, developed the mind, developed restraint, developed spacious states of mind, dwelling with the unlimited. And then he gave us the famous uh, image of the salt crystal. He said it's as if you took a, a lump of salt and put it in in a small amount of water. Then he said to his disciples, "Would you be able to drink that water?" And they said, "No, Lord, it's too salty." But he said, if you took that same lump of salt and, and dropped it in the fresh-flowing, upwards not polluted, the fresh-flowing Ganges, then could you drink that? Yes, Lord, because it's been dissolved. It's a very important principle of how in spacious states of mind, dissolving, dissolving obstructions, Notice how when sometimes we feel like we can't drink it, it's too bitter, so we're getting against our will, swept into depression, swept into just pain, swept into self-hate, swept into doubt and confusion. Have any, have any of us had this experience? And I'm sure many of us, as I've heard, have. When you give a little more space, when you're not so busy rejecting it, are not so busy just believing it, but start to notice that it's changing or the space around it. Has a sense of it flipping, somehow being different. Or like the young man I talked about the other day, when he was totally being swept away by some resulting karma and the only solution was killing himself. Was it? He was there. 
Yet in a moment of noticing, a moment of noticing my, I was freezing, noticing my teeth chattering, a moment of connecting, wasn't just in that hole, suddenly there was a larger world. And he, his natural response, you're cold. He made a gift then, shared something. The world was opened up, then he was partaking also of my energy. That's also a part of the world. It's just, this idea that there's just my own energy. What's that about? Confusion. We share each other's energy. We can. Flipped him out of it for that time. Have we noticed any of us? We haven't spoken so much about it, but in some of our devotional practices or with the bowing or with the mantra, have you ever noticed that when one praises the Buddha or Kuan Yin, There's a bow. Have you ever noticed that after some of the mantras that the atmosphere changes? The body changes? What's going on? When we're locked in the sense of self, that's a limited space. But we use that sense of self to think, to speak, to intone a mantra which is praising Buddha or Kuan Yin. It's praising the source. It's praising the refuge, the one who listens, the wise one, the compassionate one. In that moment, then, we're linking with a more measureless aspect of our being that we forget about when we're totally swept into the sense of separate me in here. It's a very powerful, devotional practice is very powerful. That the, the Buddha taught as a way of helping to transcend, to get beyond this, this limitation, to remind ourselves of the fact that we're just identifying with a cut-off wave and forgetting our depth. When we remember the Buddha, or the Dhamma, or the Sangha, or the saints, or the sages, like Kuan Yin, in that moment, we're in touch with the limited state, but we're also been in touch with, with, with our debt. For a moment, we link with that. When you praise something, that means you bring it into your heart. Unify with that. Become more spacious, even though we might, like the other the story of my friend that I visited in prison when he was so convinced, I am hateful. But then when he practiced learning to be kind to that, very conviction, in a little more space, access something he didn't know he had. He did have the ability to be patient with, to listen to. But in the case of puja or praise or devotional practices, we're in touch with the body, with the mind, but then opening to the notion of wisdom, even if we're not clear about it, or compassion even if we're confused about everything else. If we, in our heart, can say, well, I, I, I want to be wise. I praise wisdom. I don't want to harm anyone. I praise harmlessness. I don't want to recklessly hurt myself or another. I praise virtuous, impeccable conduct. 
even if we're confused about what to say, what to do, what job to do, what this, that, this, that, maybe in a moment we can have an authentic moment of knowing that. Notice those qualities, wisdom, compassion, restraint, we've allowed them in the heart and in praising them, then we're, we're reclaiming what is actually a part of us. As the Kuan Yin says, the thousand dharmas are already in our heart. But it's because of this contracted notion of collapsing around some limited We've lost touch with what is actually a part of our Dharma treasury. So praising, bowing into, remembering helps open us up, gives us access to a whole wider, fresher reservoir of good energy, which is like that flowing Ganges that dissolves, can really dissolve. So that can be skillful sometimes. Okay, we've offered a lot of chanting, but sometimes even just a little in the morning. I really enjoy, and Tanisha really enjoys just beginning the day with a gift. A stick of incense, or a candle, or a leaf, or a flower, or even a thought. Just remembering what we value. So that we can link with our measureless aspect. We still notice the form of the body, but then it's not just the body anymore. It's the body, it's the mind, it's our mood within the spaciousness, within the refuge. And it becomes very different. Devotional practice came more late for myself. Uh, I didn't start out. My earlier life, I was devoted to success. I tried to be a good person. And I was devoted to winning wrestling tournaments and trying to be the best at academics. But I still was quite uh, willful and my, my sense was that the way forward was getting concentrated enough and then just blowing this thing out of here. <laughs> so I had a certain facility for getting calm and I just, I was like a snapping turtle. Let's give more calm and more calm. Hence my crusade against picking clocks. <laughs> more calm, more calm, more calm, and then wow, just blow it all out of there. Be done. Have a big smile. <laughs> As they say, wrong view. <laughs> you know. And so I, I, I uh, you know, I ran into something I couldn't just shift with willpower. You know, in wrestling, you can do. I used to do 500 press-ups a day. I used to run. I used to climb ropes. I used to do this, that, this, that. Practice. We even had a wrestling match at home. I mean, I was into it. You can do a lot with willpower. You can study. I ran up against something I couldn't shift with just an act of will. I got really sick. Six months of diarrhea, then urinating blood, then typhoid. Then, uh, you know, then for like 10 years after that, you know, very, very weak. Years being, spending a lot of time, most of the time, lying down. Most of the time with inflamed pains. Anything I would eat causes an ulcer here, bleeds there, does this, does that. And as much as I try to get concentrated enough and then feel the energy and feel all the power going through the body and say, yes, I've done it. <laughs> and it uh, come back, more and more weakness. 
couldn't just shift it with an act of will. And little by little, being a slow learner, I started to, and with the encouragement of my teachers, I started to be take sickness as a heavenly messenger. It's something that is, was appeared perfectly according to the law, something to learn from. I had the chance to start learning from surrendering, learning from also resting, learning from letting be and getting a sense of the depth getting a sense of also that which is okay there's a sick body that which is painful but are we sick is that our main identity if we hold that lightly and compassionately and just start to not cling or reject it we start to kind of sense the spaciousness the health the brightness of our being starting to explore softening the will, putting down the will, not permanently, but when you're really, really sick, you realize you can even hardly talk to somebody. You can focus with your eyes. So it was an opportunity to really get a feeling for what happens when you really let go. Even my teachers remembered me being so athletic and this and that. And were fond of me when I could do yoga and run around and do this and do that. Even my uh, teacher, my Western abbot, Ajahn Sumedho, apologized to me one day. I used to lie in the attic month after month, roll over from this side to that side. I I must have seen scores of different uh, healers and therapies and treatments and hospitals and, and they... I kept alive. But each one I would, I think somebody used to visit me, are you getting better, Kitty Saw? I would say, well, I, I, think, I think I'm getting a little better. Okay, okay. And then one day he just came up and said, Kitty Saw, I would like to apologize to you. And I said, what is it, General? He said, I want to apologize to you. have my full permission to die. (laughs) He said, I realize I've been putting all this pressure on you. Pressure to get well, to get well, to get well. He said, I don't hope you die. It'd be wonderful if you don't. He says, it's okay. You see, relief, the joy of being able just to not have to be the one to control it all, to relinquish, to feel the peace. And it's still emerging, wanting to be a part and wanting to help, to be able to hold that a little more lightly. And it's then during that time I became more prayerful. So willful, seeing more the the benefit of just the listening. It's about this time that I encountered Kuan Yin. Encountered the teachings from this great Chinese master that had a link with our monastery. His disciples came to us, and we went to them. And I read uh, some of his words first. 
he talked about this great bodhisattva of compassion that could help with illness. And, but also this great bodhisattva seemed to appear in all these wisdom teachings as well. Didn't really understand it at the time, but I, even though I could really deeply have permission to, to die and feel that peace that wasn't a strain, there still from time to time was a natural welling up of wanting to be of service, wanting to help, wanting to... So I asked my teacher, I said, well, can I write this master and ask him about, about this? He said, that's... And I tried everything else. So my teacher said, yes, and I'll do that. And I, and I started making contact and learning about these practices and holding Kuan Yin's name and learning the mantras and been doing them regularly every day for the last 20 some odd years. And um, I realize it's been very, very, very important part of uh, my life, of our life. A difficult area to talk about, this prayerfulness, this puja, this recitation. But it's something to do with this principle that's contained in Sangha. The Buddha didn't just teach that it's just me doing it. Yes, we have to make effort. But it's a delusion to think we're absolutely cut off. We're affected by one another. That's why the third refuge and significant refuge, even to the point where the Buddha said our good friends are the whole of the holy life because they set good examples. They remind us, encourage us, support us. That helps us realize it's not just what we do in here, it's also what we receive, the blessing we receive. And I hope from the breath we can realize we receive a blessing of breath. We receive food. We receive teachings. We receive encouragement. Can we also learn how to receive blessings? And that's part of what mantra practice is about and devotional practice is about. When we're locked into me doing it, it's so heavy, we're pushing something and we can't push it and we're swept away. Mantra practice is a softening so that we can then begin to connect with and receive part of the natural breath blessings that are a part of this interwoven totality. When people came up to the Buddha and were stuck and asked the question, there was the universe responded. It made a difference in people's lives. Kuan Yin means the one who listens. As the Buddha teaches in the in the his discourses, Kuan Yin was a Buddha ancient time ago. Beyond all clinging, all aversion realizing the timeless, formless perfection. And Kuan Yin, feeling the suffering of all beings, resolved to continue manifesting as a bodhisattva, manifesting as someone who could respond to suffering, to help. Kuan Yin made a vow that if someone needs to hear teachings from, from a king, I'll manifest as a king. Or they need to hear it from a warrior, I'll manifest as a warrior that speaks Dhamma. Or if someone needs to hear, to receive being touched and teachings from an animal, I'll manifest as an animal. Or from a, a maiden, I'll manifest as a maiden. Resolving to manifest uh, timelessly in ways to help living beings. 
Kuan Yin's name is the one who listens to the sounds of the world, made a vow to respond to suffering. The Buddha taught that this being is so wise and so powerful. The Buddha taught that holding Kuan Yin's name, this holding the name, has immeasurable power to it. You think, well, how could that be? Well, how is it that sometimes we're in trouble and if we know the name of a friend and can contact a friend, that that can make a difference? How is that? That's so impossible to believe. We can help one another to hold a name, to link with that energy. Kuan Yin vowed that those who are carried away by anger, if they hold the name of Kuan Yin little by little, the anger can dissolve or the greed can dissolve where the delusion can dissolve. I've practiced this for, for, for many years, and yes, there's the efforts that we make, but sometimes if we only know how to solve things through will, we keep ramming our head against the wall, trying to do it. We've, we've ceased to trust that another way to operate on problems is by listening, is by relaxing, is by going to the place where we all merge. Where does the rich and the poor and the Buddha and the Christ and all, where do we all merge? The Buddha taught we merge in that place of non-grasping, non-aversion. That place right here at the core of this moment in the heart. Can we actually learn to trust that that's another way of being with this moment? So many times in my daily life, our daily life, when, when I'm trying willfully to solve it and realize I don't know how, I just come back to Namo Konjimpusa. Let the sound of the mantra go. It's using thought, but it's not thought that engages the mind in a lot of thinking. Namo Konjimpusa, just letting the mantra encourage me to hold thought more lightly. And after the mantra dissolves, I'm back with the listening. Namo Kuan Shin Pusa, reminding me to trust the listening. Namo Kuan Shin Pusa, that gives space. Namo Kuan Shin Pusa, I offer my life to the immeasurable one that listens. It's a whole different way of also working on our problems by going to the source, learning how to trust. All I can say is there's a powerful response powerful response. Can we, little by little, allow ourselves also to be fed, also to be helped, to speak, to do, but also to allow ourselves to be listened to. And this is where Sangha is important. But if there's no Sangha, if you don't have anyone outside, and then in our private prayerful moments, and even with your sanghas in our private prayerful moments, can we trust that this universe at its core is listening? It's awake. In our private moments, can, can the heart's deepest stirrings be spoken? I'm confused. Or listen. That allows us to hear it, but it allows us to offer that. And at the same time, it's, it's heard. Allow ourselves into to speak into the immensity and then listen back into the silence. 
it appears to be dualistic when we talk about worshipping Kuan Yin or worshipping the Buddha. That's just the word. But as you'll see, for those of you who study or take part in the ceremony tomorrow, deep within the contemplation of worship is this notion of the worshipped and the worshipper dissolving back into stillness. It's essentially an expansion, a melting, allowing ourselves to partake of the natural vitality and healing and wise and compassionate energies that are a part of our true nature. Maybe tomorrow we can, uh, if there's time, we can talk about. But Kuan uh, Yin certainly saved our life in Africa in some pretty dramatic ways. So I encourage us to to deeply contemplate this salt crystal principle. Now all these practices keep encouraging us to relax and open and balance this contracting tendency with a connecting with that which is spacious. And in the forms of our lives, the shapes of our lives, the feelings and thoughts of our lives are held within and continually merging and being recreated in the heart. All for these uh, thoughts for our contemplation.